Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crib, the podcast of Kickstarter, the crowdfunding website. Each week I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, November 4th, 2013. On this day in history in 1922, British archaeologist Howard Carter and his workmen discovered a step leading to the tomb of King Tut. Weeks later, they entered the tomb and found it surprisingly untouched. How can that be anything but cool? First up, Guy, the man behind the Custom Skulls project on Kickstarter. Also joining us is Gabriel, a kid who can only be described as one of the world's biggest Lego fans. Hello. Hey, how you doing? Pretty good, this guy. Yeah, how's it going? Who's the other person? So you're talking to DJ Grandpa and you're talking to his sidekick at the moment. Hey, nice. On Lego.com, he goes by Space Police. Oh, fantastic. Well, as you know, I'm a bit of a fan of the Legos myself. Gabriel, how old are you? Oh, no, no. Policeman Spiff. What's your name? Space Plane. Oh, Space Plane? Police. Space Police. All right, all right. Nice. Yeah, you like to buy uh, Lego sets and stuff, don't you? Yes. How old are you? 13. Yeah, that's, that's a good enough age, I guess. Now, where did you get the idea for these crazy skulls? Yeah, I do uh, a lot of custom building and stuff within what you would call the AFOL community, which is adult fan of Lego. And uh, I've always done a lot of custom pieces and parts. Uh, my background is from uh, special effects and film. And uh, I had done a previous Kickstarter called Pigs vs. Cows, which was the theme of the big BrickCon convention in Seattle this past month. And then uh, I enjoyed that so much, I was thinking, all right, I want to do some more custom pieces. What should I do? And I always thought a really nice sort of anatomically correct skull would be a good addition for miniature figures. Yeah, that's what's missing in my collection, an anatomically correct skull. Almost like a voodoo skull or something like that. But Yeah, skulls kind of for everything, man. Every theme sort of can use a skull. Right, I got you, I got you. Yeah. Now, for anyone who can't see your page, it's kind of, to me it looks a little swashbuckling only because of the way that the letters skulls is spelled out with an exclamation point. And it looks like one of the, the skull and body has kind of like a sickle or something like that. The sort of Grim Reaper character you're looking at right. kind of fit in well with the skull theme. So he'll have a, a special color skull and uh, a whole laser cut cape set up and a custom injection molded. It'll be a whole special piece when it's uh, done. Young Space Police, did I get it right? Yeah. I mean, that's something where it, when I was his age, if I saw that, I'd immediately go, yeah, I need to have me a couple of those. Well, you should ask him. Does he want one? Let's see. What did he say? Well, I'm saying you should ask him. Oh, uh, do you want a skull or two for your collection to build with? Yes, sir. Yeah, see? I knew he was going to say yes. And you really like those skulls? Yeah. What do you mean, yes? I do. You do? What about the pigs and the cows? How do you like those? Did you see those yet? Those look really cool, too. What about like a zombie pig and zombie cow? What did you think about the zombie ones? Those would be really neat, too. Did you guys also see the picture of the gingerbread man and the zombie gingerbread man? Is that below? Were you able to get the files that I sent your way uh, via WeTransfer? Oh, yeah, 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 I did get that. Hold on, I never opened them. 
open them up. I was so busy trying to get everything else done. Yeah, no worries. Where are those we? Oh, here it is. We transfer. Oh yeah, there's a bunch of files. Yeah, take a look at the zombie gingerbread man. I think okay, uh, we're looking the young gentleman there will definitely think that's wow. pretty. Wow. Oh yeah. That's what we like. Wow. Oh, spaceman, whatever. What's your first impression? That is cool. And you said there's a zombie. One's a zombie gingerbread. Yeah, if you look in there, you'll see there's a regular gingerbread man, and right. then there's also a zombie gingerbread man. Wow, you've been busy. Limited edition minis. Oh, yes. Pigs versus cow Kickstarter. I'm looking at that. Now, one of them on the right looks like a baby, mean baby cat, one of those pigs. Yeah, that was a, one of the stretch goals that unlocked during the Kickstarter when I did that one. So one of the tiers was create your own character. Right. And uh, right. the guy who sponsored that decided he wanted to see a, a cat. So we actually did a, a custom character just from one of the people that pledged wanted a cat. So uh, that's where that came from. Now I'm looking at Horseman. Yeah, and that's uh, one of the skull figures with kind of like, you know, kind of the Grim Reaper vibe. The Bones of the Empire. Wow. That's scary. That's a creepy one. That was a, a fun, like an Uncle Sam figure I had done earlier. Because I also do those, those top hats, you see? I see. Custom top hats, too. There's a skull crate to keep all your bones and stuff in game. Um, Spaceman. A good friend of mine runs a company called Brick Arms, which uh, Gabriel, I mean, space police cop man there might have heard of. Uh, you know who Brick Arms is? Who is he? Brick Arms is kind of makes all the really fantastic World War II uh, weaponry and stuff that's scaled for Lego figures. Wow. Like a military pistol or rifle or something, he's probably the guy that did it. And um, he does those crates, and we did uh, custom versions of them for supporters also. So that crate is available to people that uh, pledge to the uh, Kickstarter campaign. Wow, skull crate. Yeah. That's a yeah, that's cool. crate. Yeah, you've done a great job, man. And, and they all seem to glow, just a, just a hint of glow in all the pictures. You're crazybricks.com, right? That's me. Legos are just totally cool, and I like your whole program. It says skulls, custom accessories for your miniature brick figures. And if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com, and we'll have all the links in the world that'll lead you back to crazy bricks. And guys, uh, Kickstarter campaign, dude. Thank you very much for coming on the show and giving a slice of your world to me and Police State here, whatever whatever name he's going by tonight. Police <laughs> State, what else are you? Manifest Destiny, whatever he's calling himself. Thank you. You got it, bud. Katie is a junior architect. She volunteers at Habitat for Humanity and she creates handmade chocolates and confections. She came on the show to tell us about her Kickstarter project, Draft Chocolates. Your Kickstarter seems really cool and everybody loves chocolates and this seems like the perfect time of year for you to come out with this type of confection. Yeah, I really wanted to launch before the holidays so I could kind of hit the holiday season. I'm kind of in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're close. You're close. Yeah. Tell me about your 
your company, Draft Chocolates. Cool name. You got that little, is it a snail? It is a snail. Oh, okay. Logo. Yeah. That snail is uh, how I drew snails when I was a kid. My dad always really liked that drawing, and so it kind of stuck with me as a like a stylized snail. Right. And I've been wanting to have a chocolate company. I kind of had a false start in 2009 when I was living in New York City, and my best friend and I tried to start something, but there's just so much competition in New York, and the expense and like we found a kitchen we could use but they didn't even have air conditioning so that wouldn't work and the cost of everything was just overwhelming so we put it on the back burner and since I moved out to Oregon or since I moved back to Oregon I just found that it was more affordable and there seems to be more of a feasible market for me here. Now, Draft Chocolates, still say it's a really cool name. What type of chocolates do you have if, you know, if like you're a chocolate lover or connoisseur of the confection type sweets? And I know that's redundant, but I still wanted to say it like that. Mostly I've been just experimenting. Um, I'm not a full-on business yet. What I really wanted to do was get some equipment so that I can figure out how to make larger quantities of chocolate. But some of my flavors that my friends know me for are like a vanilla bean, like plain, simple truffle, also a pumpkin pie spice, which has no pumpkin, but has like a pumpkin pie spice mixture basically in it. And it's kind of like a very fall flavor. Right. And recently I've been making apple cider caramels that are delicious and I made a pumpkin caramel. Right. And then uh, homemade marshmallows, which I've also made like full-on homemade s'mores where I make the graham cracker and I make the marshmallow. Wow, that's cool. Do you use like a torch or something with the s'mores? Um, I have just at home. I haven't uh, like torched all of them, but okay. I have just toasted a few. <laughs> but you're making me feel like Martha Stewart in the early days, way before she was a criminal, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Way before she was a criminal. Yeah, I was a big fan of hers, man, before she went to jail. I mean, not to say that I wasn't after she went to jail. I'm just saying, like, in the 80s, I used to watch her all the time. I was like, man, I love this lady. I love Martha Stewart stuff. And I've always been a, like, a do-it-yourself kind of person of, oh, you can make marshmallows? How do you make marshmallows? Or, hey, I wonder if I could make graham crackers from scratch. And I enjoy the, like, process of figuring out how to make things Mm -hmm. that you wouldn't normally make, that your average person would just go to the store and buy. I haven't done that many food projects on Kickstarter. I kind of stay away from them a little bit. But I'm thinking that you're not legal yet, so you're trying to get the money so that you can get like all the proper facilities and stuff like that and you can actually start a manufacturing process and maybe turn this into a real business and sell your products, right? Is that correct? That's like the long-term goal. I don't have experience working in a kitchen. And so what I wanted to do with this Kickstarter was get the funds to first buy the equipment so that I can learn how to use like a chocolate tempering machine And then the next stage within the Kickstarter, and you can see it in my staggered reward delivery dates, Yes, is to rent a commercial kitchen and get the insurance that I need to use the kitchen to set up just 
like a very simple business so that I can try it out and get used to it and figure out the costs of things and really figure out the numbers and what it takes to make all these chocolates while working a full-time job. <laughs> right, right, right. Many hats, many hats of the businesswoman. I understand that. Can you tell that I like asking offbeat questions? Oh, I enjoy it. I love questions. Okay. All right. My next question is, there seems to be like, a, I'd say a revolution almost of people who go to cooking school and do cooking endeavors because of the cooking channel. I mean, it feels as though the cooking channel has just flooded the schools with fresh applicants that they never <laughs> had before. Did that do that for you in any sort of way, watching the cooking channel? I think that that really it's like the local food movement and the do-it-yourself approach is really kind of exploding. Yeah, it is. The maker movement. I think that would be where my like passion for this comes from is that I'm I'm definitely a maker. Right. But more in chocolate than like the robotics or something. <laughs> you feel Kickstarter written all over you, you know? <laughs> and Kickstarter is definitely a community for those of you who don't know. Some people only believe that you can raise money on Kickstarter if you bring your own community with you. But I believe that's not true. Kickstarter is a lot about teamwork. And when you get your backers excited about your product, like they would be about chocolate, they tell other people. I started out with mostly just my own community, mm -hmm. a lot of first-time backers, friends and family. And then um, I was selected as a staff pick yesterday, and that helped bring in some of the outside community. And then I've had a few backers who found me just by looking for local projects that they wanted to back. If anyone out there on Kickstarter, I am saying that Katie is totally cool and her chocolates look way cool if you look at the, all the pictures and stuff she has some beautiful pictures and video which it's hard to do for me to do a project without a video and she has a nice t-shirt that I'm saying looks like a squirrel but it's the coolest little snail in the world it's called draft chocolates check it out on Kickstarter and if you can't find it there we'll always post links for Katie and draft chocolates on djgrandpa.com Katie, thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing such a wonderful story. I wish you the thank best. Thank you, Jay Grandpa. Hello, my name is Tom Dalgleish. I own a company called Columbia Games. We have published great board games for more than 40 years. Hello, how are you, Grant? At Columbia Games, how are you doing? Good. State of Washington. Yes, across the country, as far as we can get from you. Yeah, 40 years into the making. Family business, you can uh, tell by looking at me, I'm not 40 years old, but uh, my father started the business back then in uh, 72. Yeah, I heard, man. That's incredible. Now you guys are doing the Kickstarter formula, the Kickstarter model, you know, taking advantage of this platform and stuff. So. Well, we've been doing... The concept of uh, taking pre-orders for games for a long time, right? way before Kickstarter, it's just essentially a newer, slicker way to do it. We're on our second one now. Uh, first one was wildly successful. Second one's bringing us down to earth a little bit, actually. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a little slow. I'm pretty sure we'll, we'll hit our funding total here. And then I think the next thing that we got to do to keep the people excited is publish something new. We've got a backlog of new games. 
those just take a long time to develop and finish and do right. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's looking for the new kid on the block and all of that, you know. And block, how cute that you use that. That's probably no pun intended, but there it is. Everyone keeps accusing me of puns, and I'm not a punny guy. See, I said it was not intended. It just slipped out. I make fun of people, but not puns. But yes, your game does have some beautiful blocks. I checked it out, and... My children, you know, the, some of them are into history a mm-hmm. great deal. And I live in Virginia, so there's so many things that kind of bring me closer to the game. You know, the Civil War, all of that. So so it's kind of yeah. cool, man. Alexandria is a major important spot on the fighting in the map. And uh, you can learn, how, you know, why when you see it in right. play. That's why people play these war games is to learn about it and relive it. And then there's the competition. That's fun, too, you know. I see that you called it Bobby Lee, though. Why shorten it? Well, Bobby Lee would be the the name that his friends might have called him or his affectionate name for him. So we chose it with that in mind. It's intended to be, you know, reaching into the level of personal and to differentiate it from, you know, just another Robert E. Lee where there's been so many books and titles and things with that name. So that was the thinking. I know. I'm sure everybody knows what the Civil War is all about, but for some people, like you may have international backers who may not mm-hmm. be as familiar with the United States Civil War. I mean, would you like to give me a short synopsis of that or, you know, or just or just at least tell what Bobby Lee is all about? Well, Bobby Lee, it focuses in on what is ultimately called the Eastern Theater of the Civil War because they fought in the West, in the Mississippi area a lot too. But this part of the war is kind of where most of the famous stuff happened. Oh, yeah. The famous things like Gettysburg. Antietam, all of that. And those are all in this part of the world, plus the capital, Washington, and the Confederate capital, Richmond, are, are right on the Bobby Lee map. In fact, they're only separated by 100 miles in the real world. And one of the ironies is that an army unopposed could march the distance from one to the other in a week. But it took four years for uh, either army to actually complete the move because just how difficult it is to move and supply armies in enemy territory. So the the Civil War course began in 1861. That's the real time period that it began. It was certainly a lead up to it in terms of arguments and political wrangling. The event that starts it off is a separation our attempted secession is the right word of South Carolina as a state wants to leave the union, doesn't agree with some policies, wants to leave the union and the union doesn't think that that that's okay. And that is a very interesting and debatable subject as to whether a a state had the right to separate back then. They thought they did. The rest of the states kind of thought they didn't and they were willing to fight about it. Later on in the history, the war was turned into conflict about slavery, although slavery certainly underpinned the arguments that the states had with each other and southern states kind of had with northern states. Nobody actually started the war over slavery in in any kind of literal sense. And really, it it was a political brilliance of Lincoln to use the Emancipation Proclamation to turn this war, which really, if you think about it, was not unlike 
an imperialist aggressive war to conquer some people that didn't want to be part of them. Right. And they turned the whole thing into a noble crusade against to free the slaves with some good political gamesmanship. And of course, the result in the end was that it became illegal and part of national law that there could be no more slavery. But I find it interesting that it didn't start that way. It uh, absolutely started as a, a struggle over simply the right to make your own decisions as a statehood, I guess. And it's hard for us to think of that these days because we're very federal. This is the United States of America, and we hardly think of ourselves anymore as Washingtonians or Virginians or, or any of that day to day. State lines are all blurry these days, and people have been moving around. And Back then, though, it really almost was like a different country. I've been to some places in the South, and, you know, sometimes different people say, you know, the Civil War, as far as we're concerned, is not over. <laughs> I've heard that. I've heard that. <laughs> I was but like, they, they're not likely to bring it back to the kind of uh, level that it was. Yeah. It's hard to imagine a state seceding these days. It really just doesn't seem like it could fit. It sounds like crazy talk whenever I hear it. You know? I was like, yeah. that's crazy talk. The board game, of course, lets you relive and experience the whole war from the, from the beginning, fight your way all the way through it. And you do get a bit of a, you know, an ebb and a flow sometimes. Right. The uh, Confederates will start off before the Union really get built up with a large army. They'll start off doing okay, doing well, fighting successfully for a while. And then they may have to switch to kind of defensive role, trying to stop the Union when they're coming with their big armies. But there's all kinds of ways to do that. It's not just beat up on the army. You can try to get around them and cut off supply lines the more famous way from history is to distract the whole Gettysburg campaign, the famous Gettysburg battle. Right. Really, Robert E. Lee's move in 1863 up into Pennsylvania, he started that very summer down in the middle of Virginia, and, and Richmond wasn't very far away. And if nothing else had happened, the Union probably would have advanced and, and taken Richmond that summer. But General Lee's philosophy or strategy, I mean, he picked up his whole army and won a little battle, and then he moved the whole army up north, through the, up the valley, up into Pennsylvania to fight at Gettysburg. The effect of that, even though he lost the battle uh, on paper, was to make it so that the Union advance on Richmond stopped. It didn't right. keep going. So the war didn't end in 63. And the same thing is true and actually in 62. The famous Stonewall Jackson in the Valley campaign is thought to have saved Richmond from falling that year when um, they call the Peninsula campaign where they were pushing on the gates of Richmond. And again, the, the response by the Confederates, one wonders if they could had this all planned or just lucked into it, but was, was yeah. to throw a curveball at the Union, like just go do something else entirely from what is kind of the obvious thing. And every time they did it, it would cause the Union leaders to go into a panic. And one of the things going on here is that the politics and the, and the military are getting mixed up a little bit. Lincoln right. is kind of wanting to, to see success. And he's you know, firing generals if they don't fight enough and panicking, certainly, whenever there's any threat on Washington or the North. So that, I guess, Lee knew that. The Confederates who orchestrated these distraction campaigns knew that and used it really well in that 
enabled the Confederacy to survive those four years. Otherwise, it's just not even a contest. So in the game, you do the same stuff. If you just sort of stand there and wait for the Blue Army to come at you, it'll probably just come at you. And if you instead use some of your advantages when you're on defense, it's an advantage. You have internal lines. You can fall back on your right. on strength all the time. And then you bluff and you surprise and attack where the enemy is weak. There's a lot of tried and true strategies from basic military history that work here. And you can do them in spades in, in Bobby Lee and really see how the history makes sense. You say I'm pretty passionate about the game, actually, and that's cool. Yeah. History in general just excites me. I find the more I read about or learn about a particular subject, the more interesting it gets, the more human it becomes. For me, that's important. Uh, real people, not just a series of facts and dates, battles that were won and lost by this or that guy, right. but why it all happened. It's timeless. When you understand some of those things, you understand what's going on today. You understand mm -hmm. the politics of today. It's also true that history really shapes us. Everything that, that is going on in our lives was really decided by someone else in our past. Right. The basic idea that we have you know, rights and freedoms that our forefathers fought and died for, that's history. Understanding that makes you understand some of those rights that we have and why, how precious they are, how it came to pass. So that's where my passion comes from. It may still sound contrived when I say it that way. I truly just find it interesting. A history story to me is as engaging as, as a Sherlock Holmes story or is to someone else. I understand and I can feel your passion and, and I appreciate it. And for anyone out there who may have that passion for history, as Grant does, who'd like to see the Civil War unfold one way or the other, you know, back and forth, use whatever strategies you can. I'd go to kickstarter.com and I'd check out the game Bobby Lee. That's B-O-B-B-Y Lee. And if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com where we always support education and history and pretty much all the subjects. Thank you very much for coming on the show and giving me... Uh, giving me a sneak preview of the reboot of Bobby Lee. You're sure welcome. And I'll remind everyone that uh, everything Columbia Games puts out comes with a 100% money-back guarantee. You get to try it and play it for a month or whatever you want. And if you don't love it, you send it back. We believe in these things. We've been doing it 40 years, and we can get away with that kind of a guarantee because uh, we believe in it. Thanks, dude. I appreciate it. I've been walking down this road for about 35 years now, and I can tell you. Hi, my name is Naomi Oshira, and welcome to my Kickstarter campaign. Um, I am a singer-songwriter based in Seattle, but I also call... It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Singer that you are, what, folk singer 2013 something, Seattle's finest. I was quite an honor to be named that. So you believe that everybody has a story to tell. I do. I said that's kind of interesting in itself, but that means you better have a good story yourself to tell. Uh, I mean, I think so. I don't say it's my heart, I don't give it up to anybody who comes alongside me and says, baby, I've got you. My story is that I am this African woman, African girl, 
that was raised to believe that it is possible to leave the world better than I found it. I knew from the age of when I was five, I knew that music was going to play a big role in my life. I had no idea how, but I just knew that this is how I wanted to impact the world in a good way, hopefully. And I think that's what I'm trying to do is to leave this world better than I found it with the kind of music that I write. Okay, that's lofty, but not a bad goal. I've been given a pretty good legacy. I come from an incredible family. I saw a picture on Facebook. It looked like they were like 30 deep. <laughs> like you had too much posse or something. I'm trying to figure, I, I couldn't figure the photo out. You know, I, I know the family or friends or something, village, I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I mean, you just had too much posse, so. I guarantee what you'll hear. A never-ending story This is not how we're meant to be What is that photo? You mean the one where I'm small? Yes, the one where you're small. It was my parents and a group of about seven or eight other families would get together and they would just sing. Like it was a Friday night kind of thing and they were called the Brethren. But it was not just about singing, it was about community. And like their kids are the kids that I grew up with. And I remember asking my mom, it's like, why was I the only child allowed to sing in this group? And they were like, because they heard you sing and they thought you were phenomenal. And so I got to tour with them at the age of five right. across the country. My dad was a pastor and they would just go to different churches and sing and preach. And that's where everything really begins for me. It's like that sense of community and brotherhood and trying to change the world. I got you. There's nothing wrong with trying to change the world. I keep yeah. saying that that's one of the coolest things you can aspire to do yeah you know um i wish i could change the world in some sort of way that'd be cool i'm pretty sure you are in your own way yeah maybe it'll be left for other people to judge <laughs> it's true that's very true it's like you just never know what at the end of your life and i think part of even just the inspiration of where i am right now is because in april i lost my dad and i think that became sort of that burning I'm just like that's big you know when I saw my people my dad's funeral and the things that people had to say about my dad and I said I wonder what kind of legacy I'm going to leave behind when people come to bid me farewell mm -hmm. and I wanted to be that people would have as good things to say about me as they did about my dad and and that's why I said like I come from a very good legacy and a very good family and so I'm just trying to continue like it's a privilege what I've been given and I want to sort of pass that along to my child to have a daughter and to generations to come my condolences about your father i've met i've met several women in my life adult women and well, i guess that means the same if i say women but anyway they told me that when their father died it was one of the hardest things that had ever happened to them their lives changed totally do you feel the same way Absolutely. It is one of the hardest things for sure that I think I've been through in my 36 years of living. And I think losing a parent is hard and it, emotionally and and even just like physically, like you feel like there's a blanket of security that's sort of been taken away just because of the role a father plays in a daughter's life. But then on the other hand, it really does make you realize like how life is so short and, and you have to decide like real quick why are you alive and why have you been given the chance that you're given i think for me like that was yeah and I, i've just kind of become like a i don't mess around anymore like i i feel like i'm on a mission whether it's being a good mother or being a good human being or being a good artist like yeah. everything else i'm just like yeah 
It seems as though you talk about strength and you talk about your foundation and you talk about these stories which hopefully would lend uh, to strength and foundation. You know, this kind of circular reasoning, but this kind of building on foundation. I don't know what I just said that means. <laughs> but anyway. Strength and foundation, I got that point. Right, right, right. But my point is, in your time in America, have you ever been lost for, you know, an extended period of time? If so, what did you draw on to focus, get your composure back, find your mission statement, um, retool, and come back out fighting? Well, I'll answer it this way. I grew up in a Christian home, and I think with that comes a host of so many things. Being a pastor's kid, you sort of grow up in this very incubated environment. Yeah, sometimes they're the ones that break out. And oh, absolutely, go they go crazy, yeah. and they go crazy. And thankfully, like, I think part of, like, just my personality and just who I am, like, I'm not the person who goes overboard, but I did push the envelope. And even part of, like, my coming to Seattle was because I was just about to give up Christianity. I was done with it. I was done with the church. I couldn't stand anything that it stood for. And I remember my friend saying, you should come to this graduate school. It's a pretty liberal graduate school, and I think it's a good place to, like, really wrestle with all these questions. And so, like, that's kind of, like... He's sort of like getting lost and then finding myself actually going to graduate school and really understanding like what is it that I believe about this faith that I call faith? What is it about I believe about Jesus? What is it I believe about people who believe different things or see life differently than I do? This particular graduate school, like they really force you to look at your story, where you've come from, what are the things that have made you the person you are? And they really sort of make you unravel all of that, whether it's like family history, your family of origin and sort of those defense mechanisms you've adopted and all those. So it's like, it was it was definitely like being in, going to counseling for three years of your life, but also studying theology. And I think that's kind of like how I found myself is sort of by like looking inward and trying to like unravel or unpack everything and, and decide, okay, who is Naomi and who does she want to become? I, an African girl, well, I know where I'm coming from, and I know who I want to be. I'm trying to defy everything they said of us, we who have chocolate skin. I want to make a good impact on the world. I want to be a good mother. My daughter right, right now is living with my mom. After my dad passed away, you know, my mom needed a companion and she's four years old, so it's good for my mom to have a child around. And, but I want to raise her to believe that she is wanted and she's supposed to be here and that she has the ability to live a good life and a life of privilege. I want to write the kind of music that does challenge us as human beings and okay. remind us that I think we're more alike than we are different. For anyone out there, who loves folk music? Who loves the music that's playing in the background? Naomi is incredible and she's from Seattle and I promote everyone from Seattle. <laughs> so go to kickstarter.com and, and oh, I'm never gonna be able to get your project. You're gonna have to say it again for me. It's finally Naomi Washira's full length album. Finally, okay. Yeah, right. and I'm sure I think if you Google, if you just type my name, it should pop up because I tried doing that and my name it did pop up. Oh, that's so. right. That's the way I found it. Okay, cool. Yeah. And, yeah. and if you can't find it there, always go to djgrandpa.com where we keep 
the links for everybody that's on this show. Naomi, you've been a pleasure to talk to. Thank you very much for coming on this show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. On this week's Meet the Crowd, we continue our conversation with Ron Greenfield, an expert in the entertainment industry. Welcome back, Ron. It's like two types of people in Hollywood to me, if I have to make a generalization. Number right. one, those who say that there's nothing original under the sun, and so we're just going to redo the same stories over and over. And number two, the second type of person is the one that says that you have to give the people something original. Give me an original idea. Which one are you? You know, when George Lucas produced the first Star Wars in, uh, what was it, 77 or 78? Right. They didn't have CGI. They didn't have, like, super-duper effects. No. But also, there were effects, but you also had a story there that people could relate to and become involved with. The other film, too, that I, for myself, that I was very taken with, is Gilbert's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's a story there about real people placed in the most extraordinary circumstances. And the thing that's so wonderful about it is, one, you have a story about real people, and you have something that's original. So, yes, I think it can be done. I think part of the problem, if you want to call it Hollywood these days, is nobody really has a sense of what a film is about. And sometimes you have to look to the past to go to the future. For myself, I'll always come back. You have to start with a really good story. Right. There is another thing, too, uh, and I don't know if your audience is aware of it. In the last, I would say, 30 years, there was a changeover. And I think sometimes, again, if you want to talk Hollywood, you have to remember with the beginning of the home entertainment street, Right. You have to realize in 1982, 83, that was such a novel thing because for the first time, people who had missed the movie in the theaters can now watch it at home and they watch more of it. And you'd be surprised how sophisticated audiences are right now because they're aware of all these things that go on in a movie and what to watch for and character development and story development. And if they feel, well, I don't think the character would have done that. So, you know, I think sometimes they forget how sophisticated audiences have come in the last 30 years. Right. And also, there's another thing happening. And when I started to get into home entertainment and also television, most of it, if you want to call the the formula, was everything was looked at, okay, what was the domestic gross? And that would translate into... So many dollars, right. the rentals, okay? That formula has switched now. And now it, I would say it's about 70% international, 30% domestic. Wow, that so is how do you gear your film? You know, if you're, you're spending all this money on a film, how are you going to gear it? I mean, do you focus in on Australia? Do you focus in on France or India or South Africa? Right. You can't be everything to everybody. 
you have to know where your audience is for this kind of film or whatever the film is. You have to know where to target that audience. These days, you just can't throw it out there and say, okay, let's hope we'll make some money. That's a paradigm that doesn't work anymore. I have an opinion, actually. You want to hear it? Okay. My opinion is, I think it's egregious that films cost $300 million. You know, I could see the James Cameron fluke or something like that, Spielberg. But I think the prices in Hollywood, movie land, TV land, I don't think they're sustainable. I don't think there's any way where the economy of scale, film, or whatever, should have had 12, 15 films on the market that cost that much each. I don't believe that television programs should cost $7 million an episode. I don't believe that Spielberg should have ever been able to shoot one episode of, I can't remember what the series was, on Fox for $32 million for one episode. And the series was in its first season and didn't even get a second season. I just think prices are out of line. I don't think they add up. For a studio produced film, whatever the cost is, for the balance sheets to break even or for the movie to break even, it has to make three times the initial cost of it. So if you're looking at a movie that costs $200 million, with all the way it can be promoted and shown, and that would include the original theatrical showing, the home entertainment rental, pay-per-view, cable, uh, international, syndication, whatever. Right. It has to make three times for that movie to break even. So if the movie costs $200 million, you're looking at at least $600 million before it goes from the red into the black and it starts showing a profit. How many films can say that? I would say maybe three out of 10 films. So the odds are against you right from the beginning. Right. But then if you're making a film, let's say through crowdfunding or whatever, or an independent film, the odds drop considerably. There's also, you know, two... Um, well, hold up. You mean they drop. That means, do they drop in your... Hold well, up. Do you mean they, do, do they you drop? Mean... The cost, because you don't have all this overhead. You don't have these okay. multi-million dollar salaries to pay, and everybody's getting a piece of the pie. One of the things that I find so wonderful and that I see all these young people now is they're finding their voice, and they don't have to spend $200 million. They don't have to spend $100 million or even $10 million. They're finding ways to do it, you know, to get their talent out there, get their creativity out there, and you don't have to spend all this money to do it. Okay. Well, here's another question. Then. Is it digital's fault? Is it the fault of the digital? computers? Is Yeah, is it the fault of, uh, the fault of the computers? Because I was sold that... The computers would make it cheaper, but everything still seems to just run out of control cost-wise. You know, that's like a double-edged sword. You know, people think the technology will do it. No, it still starts with the idea, your vision, and you use the digital or you use the technology to aid you in your vision. It's not the other way around. No, I understand. There are a few things, you know, for people listening that I think are important to know. And the first is, I think young filmmakers, whatever, you can be a costume designer, a set designer, a cinematographer, whatever. Today, 
there are so many more opportunities to get yourself out there than when I started in the industry. I mean, it's really incredible how many opportunities there are. At the same time, the competition is a lot more, unfortunately. Everybody wants their voice to be heard. And the third part of that is there's so much out there, and unfortunately with social media and the way things move so quickly these days, you don't have a lot of time to grab your audience. So you really only have a few minutes, unfortunately, to make the wow happen. Make the wow happen. And it can be a subtle wow. I'm not saying everything is like fireworks. You really have to consider who your audience is and get in there right away. It's just that there's so much everybody has to look at. It's like if you go to a website, if you don't see it like within the first minute or so, you're off. And so I think a lot of creative things too, unless you're like bound in a theater and you're watching a play or you're watching a film, you've right. already paid the money so you're there. <laughs> you're not going to walk out of the film or the, or the play. But if you're on YouTube or you're on one of the crowdfunding sites, if you don't grab your audience right away, you know, on your project, they're off. You know, it's a sad fact, but that's also the reality of the situation. So the one piece of advice that anybody who does crowdfunding or looking to fund their next project or their first project, you have to have the passion front and center. People respond to the passion. If you're sure of what you want to do and the passion is there, people connect with that. If it's not there, they're off. Sometimes Kickstarter is just about enthusiasm, your enthusiasm yeah. on the screen. You know, your video may be of lesser quality. It may be top of the line, but that enthusiasm shines through. You know, when you go see a film, the minute you have an audience there, you already won half the battle. Yeah. Because you, you, quote, have, if they're sitting in the theater, you have a captive audience already. And they want, seriously, you know, and I, I've seen this over and again, when they go in to see a movie, they want to feel that connection. They want to like it. That's true. And that's, as the maker or the person who has started this project or this film, that's one of your obligations to the audience. Because when all is said and done, any creative person, whatever you do, you can design logos for all I care. You don't do it in a vacuum. It's a two-part equation. There's you as the creator, and then there's the audience. Because you need the two things. They coexist together. You can't have one without the other. The kiss of death, I believe, for an artist is to be ignored. I mean, I know sometimes it comes with all the trouble in the world and and maybe reviews you don't like or reviews you do like, people thinking they know you when they've never met you. But to be ignored is, to me, one of the worst things in the world yeah. as an artist. You know, when an audience steps in to see your film or your play, they don't know what you've gone through to get there. They don't know the work, the sweat, the tears, the hours, the sacrifices that you did to get that thing up there on the screen. They just want to come in and they want to be moved in some fashion or another. To find out more about Ron, go to aspectsofentertainment.com or you can go to djgrandpa.com and we'll post links. Ron, thank you very much. Thank you. 
War Stories is a new sort of military science fiction anthology. It's a look at the people ordered into impossible situations, asked to do the unthinkable, and those unable to escape from hell. It'll have stories of courage under fire, about making difficult decisions that we'll normally never have to make, and it's about what happens when the shooting stops and before Hello. any triggers ever pulled. This is James. The name Both of the book, War Stories, in any sort of way, have to be exciting they have to be amazing they have to be just beyond belief but i could be wrong maybe your book's not about that so so why don't you tell me enlighten me so war stories is modern military science fiction and what we wanted to do was to address more of the realities on the ground of war you know a lot of military science fiction is the big space battles the overarching gigantic conflicts, you know, thousands of ships in space or conquering planets. And what we wanted to do was to kind of pull in a little bit closer and look at the individual soldiers. But we also wanted to look at war as it has changed in the past, you know, just even 15 years. The Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts have changed a lot of the ways that we conduct war, that we think about war. You know, drones are now in widespread use. That's something that was not even really considered all that many years ago. And so the entire psychology of war in the next you know, 50 years could be up for a, a fair change, while at the same time, the view of the guys on the ground doesn't really change that much. Well, have you been a soldier before? I'm actually talking to military recruiters right now, however, so that may change in the near future. You mean, you, you mean you're a city <laughs> and you're trying to actually get in the fight? Yes. See, I actually come from a military family. I have a lot of close family members. My cousin, who's actually writing the foreword for this book, I went through ranger school, uh, deployed several times in Iraq and Afghanistan, and he now writes for a blog called Ranger Up. So that's kind of been a major part of my life for a while now. I'm also dating a retired army guy. So, you know, between family and dating, and I have a lot of friends in the military, it's kind of been something that's been really close to me for a while. And one of the things that I'm really passionate about it because I see a lot of misconceptions with most civilians, you know, dealing with the military and veterans. And about your war stories, it's going to deal with some of these issues as well as maybe post-traumatic stress and stuff like that? Yeah, we actually have a fair amount of stories about technology and the sorts of things that can go wrong with that. I, Without giving away too much of the story... One of our authors actually wrote about teaching drones artificial intelligence, which is something that is being discussed right now, especially in the military communities, talking about the pros and cons of this. And the story is exploring what would happen if drones were taught artificial intelligence and and given values to judge human life on. Yeah, I don't trust that. (laughs) But go ahead. Exactly. And, And, you know, how incredibly badly things can go when that happens. And so kind of exploring the question of, is it worth sparing, uh, you know, someone's heart and mind, the drone operators versus the potential collateral damage and the potential mistakes that an artificial intelligence would inevitably make. And from the boots on the ground standpoint, there really is no 
substitute for someone being able to make that judgment call who's had the experience of, you know, 5, 10, 20 years in the field looking at a situation and going, this would look like it was actually a problem, but it's not. I'm not going to take action here, or I'm going to take a different action than an AI would make based just on cold logical numbers. I know what you're saying, or I believe I know what you're saying, but that story plays out to me like this. You can't stop artificial intelligence. As human beings, we're curious. We're going to make the mistakes that we write about, and that's always a mistake in sci-fi, and we're going to go down that path just like we're going to go down the Monsanto and genetic tampering path. I don't believe as a race we can stop that. I believe that we will always be on the brink of self-destruction, and hopefully that we'll come out on the other side and, and it'll be a positive story after we've learned our lesson. You know, the thing about science fiction for me has always been it can be a prediction or it can be a warning. And unfortunately, I think you're right that artificial intelligence in the military theater is probably inevitable. It's too much the golden child. It's something we've been chasing since Asimov, you know, and, mm -hmm. and before that. We've had stories about intelligent machines, even going back to the clockwork nightingale. Right. You know, we've had these stories forever, and it's always kind of been that cool thing as a kid. Oh, I want a robot that can, like the Transformers, that can make decisions. It's like, no, actually, that's kind of a bad idea. But I don't think that we can avoid that. But I do hope that, you know, at least there can be some cautionary influences from this kind of story saying, let's be a little more careful. Let's actually look at these things as we're moving forward. And it's a long shot, but you never know. Yeah, you're right. I can't predict the future, but so you're right. I never know. I just believe I know. Yeah. <laughs> we can believe and we can hope. <laughs> you know, hope doesn't get borne out very often, but we can always cross our fingers that it will. This has been a nice chat, man. Do, do you feel as though that I've given you uh, a chance to get what you had off your chest and <laughs> and protect your war stories and get it out there to the Kickstarter community and... This is a project that I am more passionate about, really, than any of the projects I've worked on before. And it's really good to be able to talk about some of the inspirations behind it and some of the the basis of it and kind of explain why we're doing this. And for anyone out there, war stories, modern military science fiction. Dude, I don't know what to say. Science fiction is always cool, no matter what theater it's in, you know, military or otherwise. So I'm always going to back science, education, mathematics. I'm always going to back science fiction. So go to kickstarter.com, type it in, War Stories. And if you can't find it there, always go to djgrandpa.com where we'll provide links. Jane, now your experiment in the military theater, I hope that you find what you're looking for. Thank you. My name's Careless, and over there, 2,300 miles away, across the reaches of the internet, is my friend Juja. We're an internet recording duo that uh, met here on the internet about three years ago, and share a love for video game music. Every month or so, we sit down to record songs from our favorite video games. How's it going, I dude? Say when we were Good. Starting, How are you today? 
I think so. Juja isn't here right now, but uh, I certainly am. Yeah, careless Juja, man. You guys having fun on Kickstarter? We're having a good old time. So, Travis, welcome to DJ Grandpa's crib. I wish I had your other half there. Now, now you keep showing pictures of a mule of this guy. Do you really like this guy? Yeah, this this guy's my friend we met on YouTube. Uh, he avoids posting pictures of himself because I guess he's self-conscious. He actually lifts a lot of weights. He, he's, you know, in shape and stuff. I don't know what he's so afraid of. Strong as a horse. <laughs> okay, all right. Why don't you tell me about your band? What style of music is this? I'd say it's closely related to rock. It gets a little bit ambient and light at times. I play the accordion, uh, the piano, occasionally the bass guitar, and the glockenspiel, which is or otherwise known as the bells, like an orchestra sort of thing. And he plays the guitar, electric guitar. We program drums typically, or one of our friends will record something for us uh, in a studio. And we play songs from video games. almost like geek heaven in a way if, you, if you're gonna say songs from video games and you're gonna mention the glockenspiel spiel, i can't pronounce that word but you, you know what i'm saying we're trying to recreate the sounds of these you know chippy games and make them sound real and uh add a, a different layer to them or some of them are computer games they sound less you know beeps and boops more like uh, synthetic instruments we bring in with the real stuff i'm starting to learn the violin so i can add a little bit of that in there too you're hiding behind the music. Who are you for real? In my humble world, I'm an, I'm an eight to fiver. I, I sell stuff, uh, accounting services. That's my day job. I do uh, repossessions, some of the stuff like that. The repo man? I can be the repo man, but usually they've had many warnings. <laughs> they've had many warnings. It's their own fault. I got you. I'm not the bad one. I'm, I'm the friendly guy. If you see me, I'll be friendly. <laughs> you know that's my one of my favorite movies of all time. It has to be in the top five, top three. Repo Man, so that's cool, man. It's exciting at times. And then uh, the other stuff is just calling people and, you know, they don't know who you are. They don't care who you are. They're not interested in what you're talking about. So you just chat with people and you can try to make them have a good time. Um, I know I'm a salesman and it's like... I gotta talk about business, but I try and talk about other stuff to get an idea about what it's like to live in Texas, some from Florida, so that's kind of cool. Occasionally I get to go out and visit these people that I talk to on the phone. Oh yes, Repo Man activities, undercover, clandestine. Yeah, Juju's kind of the same thing. He's a painter, he paints for, uh, of all things, a miniatures company, like tabletop board games. He paints wow. those little small things and gets paid to do that. That's his full-time job. Now that I think about it though, I'm thinking if you're painting those miniatures and it being, it has to be such a precise job and, you know, they're small, but it seems like it has to be labor intensive. It seems like you could just snap somehow doing a job like that if you did it too long. Well, he does it with his girlfriend. They chat and they have music and it's, it's more of a social thing, like they're incidentally doing it while they're in a social environment. I think alone you would snap. <laughs> I couldn't imagine that for hours. Yeah, I couldn't imagine that miniatures and just painting those things. After, I guess if you have the girlfriend over and you got a you got a beer or something like that, and you listening to some cool music, yeah, it could be okay. That's how he deals. <laughs> <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Okay, well, your music everybody would want to know about, and I may have asked you that question already. So maybe you have a different way to put it. Your music. Careless Juja is about, I met this guy on YouTube, and 
he plays music from my childhood and it's really good and I really like this guy and I'm also in a band called Random Encounter and we play songs from video games and songs inspired by video games and we go on tour and stuff and like we kind of have a name for ourselves in the state of Florida and a little bit in the southeast and he'd heard of us and thought we were pretty cool so the two of us started chatting uh, two years back and we made a, a little album together and it was pretty fun and now we're trying to make another album it's a video game album uh, again we're trying to make it sound really good, really high quality. Our first one was done, we recorded the whole thing in about uh, three weeks from start to finish. Right. This one we've taken about maybe a year and a half to work on it. Now, I guess one question is, why songs from video games, actually? I, I mean, I know you loved these songs as a kid and stuff like that, but why not pop songs? As a kid, I didn't really get out much. I was. Uh, I, I can tell that, dude. <laughs> Come on. I lived in an, on an island with no other children. And, right. Uh, the next youngest person, I think, was 60 years old. Wow. So, me going out and playing wasn't really feasible. So, I would get these video games. My childhood experiences of living up, you know, fighting the class bully never really happened. For me, that was rescuing Princess Zelda in The Legend of Zelda or, you know, playing Mario or right. uh, Nintendo 64 games. Those are my childhood. Like That's the story of me growing up. And then when I connected with other groups of people who also not only kind of understood or played the games, but they shared, to them it's just as important an experience, and they share that experience, and they kind of know what I went through, and they went through the same stuff. That's pretty magical. Like, it's, it's the sharing of the same childhood experiences with other people who you didn't know you knew. And if, if you don't even have the experiences, it's pretty good music for the most part, depending on what you like. I would call that instant atmosphere. I like that. I guess it's like a societal experiment. One time when I was in college, we would just sit down at random tables during lunchtime and we would just start, start talking about the cartoons, Saturday morning cartoons, and everybody would be, oh my gosh, yes, I love that. I love, that's, that, 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 that's me, I watched it. And all of a sudden we would make friends that way. No, exactly what you're talking about. Though. Right. Yeah. So I guess I, I could see what you're talking about. I could see the YouTube, because lots of people just lots of young people just live on YouTube and I could see what you're talking about the video games because a lot of people are video game addicts especially at certain points in their lives you know so when we recorded our first album I never met Juju he lives in Utah which is 2300 miles away we never spoke on the phone we just chatted in little emails back and forth to put this whole thing together and the first time I met him he flew down and we did like a mini tour and we, we played a few shows uh, as a different band with my other band, Random Encounter, we needed like, a guitarist. But I, I didn't meet the guy till maybe after a year of knowing with him and being his friend. And he happened to be my age, incidentally. And it's very fortunate for the tour band. But uh, he also shares a lot of the same stuff. Like you said, Saturday morning cartoon syndrome. I like it, the instant atmosphere. There's certain memories that you can bring up that are kind of universal in people. And it just kind of makes you friends all of a sudden. It's like a summer camp thing, fast friends, you know? Yeah. I'm happy for you and Juja. Anybody out there, go to kickstarter.com. I know you have to have liked Saturday morning cartoons yourself and video games, so let's not play here. We like each other already. Yeah. So look up, uh, Shall I say Careless Juju again? That, that's the title of the Kickstarter? Uh, it's just Careless Juju. We're the only one, I, I promise you. <laughs> I believe that. And if you can't find them there, go to djgrandpa.com where we'll post links. And I hope that you enjoy the cool music in the background. Travis, thanks a great deal.
Hey, thank you for having us. Or me. <laughs> He's here virtually, man. <laughs> virtually by extension. I'd like to thank all our guests. I'd also like to thank our listeners. Each week, we couldn't do it without you guys. A special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams and to my mentor, The Mumbler, for providing music to DJ Grandpa's crib. Thanks to Jeffrey Banks, Bertram Zeke, and Zach Samal, our assistant editors. Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is AF Rufus.